Amen. Uh, well, I invite you to turn your Bibles this evening to the third chapter of John's Gospel. We finally got through the first two chapters. And uh, I spent a long time this week trying to decide um, how to break up this chapter, uh, because this chapter has got a lot in it. Um, it's really deep in theology. It's, it's got verses that everybody knows, and then it's got verses that most people probably have never even heard of. Um, and this chapter also has some controversy surrounding it as well. Um, but as I, I prayed and, and thought about what I was going to do, I decided to take it in larger chunks as opposed to smaller chunks um, to give us a better picture of the whole scene of what John's trying to convey here rather than get bogged down in the minute details that uh, can distract us from the overarching themes. So tonight we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of chapter 3, and the title for tonight is, You Must Be Born Again. You Must Be Born Again. And tonight we'll meet a man named Nicodemus, and that he will be searching uh, for some answers to some deep questions in his heart um, that he has been contemplating as he has seen Jesus do the miracles and signs that we've been talking about in, in John. But before we get into tonight's passage and look at Nicodemus's conversation with Jesus, I think we need to go back to where we finished off in chapter 2 uh, as it sets the scene for what we're studying. You may remember last week as we finished up chapter 2, I said the final three verses are actually the bridge into chapter 3. So let's look at John 2 verses 23 through 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. I want to emphasize about these verses again is, is what we've been talking about belief and what it means. It's not just a head knowledge. It's not just saying you believe. It's, it's much more than that. Jesus is not interested in a spurious moment of faith in just a Oh, I saw an amazing sign. I'm going to believe, but that's, that's it. It's not going to change me. It's not going to do anything to me. He's, looking, he's not looking for those who believe in Him only because of the signs and wonders that He has done. He is looking for people who want to call Him Lord. And many can claim that, but He did say, remember, that those who say, Lord, Lord alone, He's not going to recognize them. In Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Christ, He demands a true heart change, a turning away from sin and following Him, putting our full trust in Him. It, that is what the new life is. That is the new creation, the new birth that is the one who is saved. And this is the backdrop for tonight's passage. This true belief, not this momentary belief, not just believing in signs. It's not a moment's decision. It's not just saying, yes, I believe. It's not a prayer. It's not a walking down an aisle. It's more than that. So let's look tonight at the first 15 verses of John chapter 3. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, 
We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you the heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That, he, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As I said tonight, we, we meet Nicodemus. Now our passage tonight tells us that Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. Now remember the Pharisees, they're the ruling group that is going to clash with Jesus continually uh, and his disciples continually throughout his earthly ministry. But this passage shows that at least one of the Pharisees believed in what Jesus was doing. He believed in the signs of Jesus, and we'll get back to that in a few minutes. But Nicodemus, he was not just a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And we know this for two reasons. One is that here in verse 1, it says he was a ruler of the Jews. And it tells us this again in John chapter 7, starting in verse 45. It says, The officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one has ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, that being the Sanhedrin, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So Nicodemus, in this passage, he was shown to be a member of both the Pharisees and an officer of the Sanhedrin. So who or what is the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin, it was the highest Jewish council in the first century. The body had 71 members, the head being the high priest of Israel. They governed the Jews under the authority of the Roman Empire. They would handle civil matters, criminal matters, religious matters, property matters, basically any matter that concerned the Jews themselves, the Sanhedrin would handle. However, they did not have the authority to enact capital punishment. They couldn't sentence anybody to death. That right rested with the Romans alone. And we'll see that as we get to the Passion Week when we start looking at the crucifixion of Christ and the trials of Christ. But their powers, they were... They were wide-ranging. They were allowed to arrest people. They were allowed to conduct trials. They were the judge and the jury for one of Christ's trials before his crucifixion. 
So this is a powerful man. Nicodemus is, is a big deal coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. And I don't think it's any, uh, does us any good to speculate why it was night. You know, people talk about, well, Nicodemus must have been afraid of what the other Pharisees would say, or he must have been coming to Jesus so there weren't crowds. But the fact is, we don't know why he came in the middle of the night. We just know that's when he came. It wasn't in the daytime. And then we see him greet Jesus in John 3, chapter 2. It says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, we already know from chapter 1 that rabbi means teacher. And so Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi, and this is significant because he's, he's legitimizing Jesus as a teacher which is something that as we go through John, most of the Pharisees are not willing to do. But he legitimizes Jesus as a teacher, but that's all he legitimizes Jesus as. He doesn't yet know Jesus' true identity. He's not legitimizing him as the Messiah, just a teacher. He knows there's something different about Jesus. There's something about Jesus that separates him from just the common man. He's not a trained like the Pharisees. He's not a priest but there's something different about him, and he must be from God because of the signs that he is performing. In fact, it's interesting to point out that he doesn't say that I know you are from God. He says, we know you are from God. So apparently there was more than one of the Pharisees that was believing in the signs that Jesus was doing. But we don't know who those Pharisees were. We don't know how many of those Pharisees were there. Uh, according to Josephus, there were about 6,000 Pharisees. So it could have been any, any number of those. But as we said before, Jesus is not looking for people who only believe in him because of signs and miracles that he is performing. That type of faith he rejects. He wants a true faith, a genuine faith. He wants not a superficial or momentary faith. And so Jesus, he gives Nicodemus an answer in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly. The Greek literally is amen, amen. You guys knew Greek and you didn't even know it. I'm telling you the truth. It's emphatic. And the fact that here the amen is here twice gives it double emphasis. I'm telling you the truth, Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus uses truly, truly 25 times in John's gospel. In fact, John's gospel is the only time we have recorded Jesus using this. And three of those times are in our passage that we're studying tonight in verses 3, 5, and 11. And it's, it's important. It's, it's crucial to understand what Jesus says after every time that he says, truly, truly. Pay attention, Nicodemus. I'm telling you the truth. You must be born again. And the word again, it can also be translated as from above. In other words, it could say you must be born from above. But Nicodemus understood this as born again, as we see in the, in the next verse. But this birth, this, this born again is what brings us into the family of God. And we saw this foreshadowed in John chapter one, verses 12 through 13, where it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now this, this born again, this spiritual rebirth, this is what we call regeneration. And regeneration is something that we'll talk about extensively in John's gospel. Regeneration is the working of the Holy Spirit in one's life to make them alive and able to place faith in the gospel of Christ. Remember, salvation, it doesn't come from anything we say. It doesn't come from anything that we do. Salvation comes from God alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. In verse 13 in John 1 says it all, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Remember, we're in such a radical state of depravity after the fall in Genesis 3. We are so dead in our sin that we cannot choose God. Nobody seeks after God. There is none righteous, not one. We are so radically depraved, we cannot choose God. We cannot choose Christ naturally. We must be enabled by the Holy Spirit to do so. And that is the new birth we see in John 3. That is the change, this regeneration, this rebirth that enables our faith. Now, some say, no, that's, that's not right. We place our faith in Christ, and that's how we are saved. That's how we are spiritually reborn. Well, let me think about this for a minute. Did you choose your physical birth? No, of course not. We had nothing to do with our physical birth. We just showed up. That's, that's, that's all we had it. We just, you know, after all was said and done, here we are. We had nothing to do with it. It's the same with our spiritual birth. What makes us think that we can choose our spiritual birth? It's a very real reason why he's equating this to birth. And we will see this continually as we go through the John. Spiritual birth is a work of God and God alone. It is his choice. Faith and repentance are the necessary steps after regeneration. They are the guaranteed result of that spiritual birth. If you are spiritually reborn, it is guaranteed you're going to place your faith in Christ. That's how it works. Dead men can choose nothing. You know, think about it. We, we, we don't expect someone that's buried in the ground to be able to make life decisions, right? He's dead. Same thing with spiritual death. We can't make spiritual decisions if we're dead spiritually. We have to have a rebirth. We are dead before our spiritual birth. And so let's look at some passages that talk about being born and talk about this spiritual death and what God does for us in our spiritual death. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved, not of our own doing. It doesn't get any plainer than that. It's nothing we do. It's nothing we say. It's solely the gift of God prepared and determined beforehand. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. We don't create ourselves. God is the one that creates everything. Titus 3.5, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's by God's will that we are saved. It's not by our will that we are saved. His decision. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. 1 John 2.29, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. That spiritual birth is solely of God. He gave us birth. He gave us the power to have faith. Regeneration precedes faith, but regeneration guarantees that faith will come. Now, for many, this is a hard pill to swallow because it takes the power out of their hands. It takes salvation out of their hands. We, we so often talk about, you know, you must place your trust in Christ, and that is absolutely true. But we talk about it as if they have the sole decision, and that's not true. That's a works-based salvation. If it's solely dependent on something that we do, that's a faith of works. That is not the faith of God. And we'll talk a lot about this as, as we go through John's gospel. As I said, God's election has nothing to do with anything we do. It has everything to do with his sovereign will and his purposes. We can't save ourselves. We can't choose to be saved. God chooses to save us. Now think about it this way. Think about it. If, if you're on a ship that sinks and now you're in the middle of the ocean, you're thousands of miles away from land, and a rescue crew is coming. Are you choosing to be saved or are they choosing to save you? It's nothing that you've done. They've decided, they've made the decision to come get you. It's the same thing with God. He decides to save us. We can't save ourselves. But back in John 3, Nicodemus, he doesn't understand what Christ is, is talking about. When he says, you must be born again in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus, he's completely missed the point. He, he's still thinking in literal terms here. I'm going to somehow be born again physically. That makes no sense. What are you 
talking about. He does not understand Christ. I, I'm old, Jesus. Teacher, I'm, I'm old. How can I be born again? I can't climb back in the womb, spend nine more months, and come back out. It doesn't work that way in case you didn't know. What are you talking about? So Jesus answers him again. Verse 5. Jesus answers, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So for the second time in this passage, we see Jesus saying, truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth, Nicodemus. Listen to me. This is true. I know what I'm talking about. Unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this, this verse is, has stirred up a lot of discussion because people, they are undecided about what it means in this verse to be born by water. And there are basically three major viewpoints. The first is this, that it is referring to baptism, particularly Christian baptism. However, this doesn't make any sense as Christian baptism had not yet begun at this point. Nicodemus wouldn't know what that is. Remember the baptism that John the Baptist was doing was a baptism of repentance. It's not the Christian baptism that we are talking about today where we symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The second view is that this verse is referring to water purification, and they talk about themes of water going from John chapter 1, John chapter 2, and John chapter 3, and specifically point back to John chapter 2, tying this into the first sign miracle with the six jars of purification water. And so they tie it back to that. And then they also appeal to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 37, which say this, I will take you from the nations and gather you all from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove from the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my words. So the second view is that it is somehow tied to the purification rites of the Old Testament and of the Pharisees. And the third popular view is that this is literally talking about a physical birth. The water means the fluids involved in both birth or procreation. This view appeals to the parallels of the passage in context. That is to say, Nicodemus thought Christ was talking about a physical birth. And then Christ affirms, yes, Nicodemus, you must be born physically, but you must also be born spiritually. The next verse talks about birth of the flesh and birth of the spirit. So it seems obvious in this view that those three parallels are all talking about the same thing. Physical birth, spiritual birth, and making one whole complete scene. It would also give illustration of double meaning that there must be a spiritual seed just as physical seed for that spiritual birth to take place. Now, I think we can safely rule out the first viewpoint of Christian baptism for reasons that we've already given. And in my opinion, the second viewpoint overly uses symbolism to try to tie this passage to purification rites. Now, it could be that is what Jesus meant. But personally, I believe it's talking about physical birth, and spiritual birth, as that's the plainest meaning of the passage in the context that we find it. But regardless of what Jesus meant by water birth, the focus of the passage is not physical birth. The focus of the passage is spiritual birth. You must be born of spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus continues in verse 6. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And Jesus, he's hammering the point home. This is, this is not a human birth that we're talking about. It's not of human creation. It's not of human will. We're talking about a spiritual birth. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's all it can do. A human is going to give birth to a human. A human is not going to give birth to spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh cannot create spiritual birth and seed. Spirit is only born of spirit. It's only born of God, not man. God is the one who gives that spiritual birth. I cannot emphasize this enough for Jesus has now hit this point three times. You must have spiritual birth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Nicodemus, he's, he's getting further and further confused. He, he still has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus can sense this. So he says in verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do not marvel. Now the word marvel, it means amazed, astonished. It can also mean greatly disturbed, which I'm pretty sure at this point, seeing how his Nicodemus is thinking he's going to have to get back in his mother's womb. He has no idea what's going on. What are you talking about? How can these things be? Nicodemus, he's, he's completely lost at what Jesus is trying to say here. Because this is so contrary to what the Pharisees had been teaching. Remember, the Pharisees, they were teaching incredibly strict adherence to the law and some extra rules that they imposed upon the law as the way to be holy and pure and right with God. And here Jesus, he's, he's just tearing that notion completely apart, tearing it down. No, Nicodemus, that's not what this is about. It's not about keeping rules and regulations. It's not about legalism. It's about a spiritual rebirth, about birth from God. Don't be surprised by this. I'm telling you the truth. And again, Jesus says, you must be born again. He's not just saying that, hey, you know what? To enter the kingdom of God, you, you need to be spiritually born. He's saying, no, you must be reborn. You have to be born of the Spirit. It's imperative. It's the only way. There are no alternatives. There are not multiple ways to God. This is it. This is the way. And Jesus expands on his explanation in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, at first, this, this verse seems a little confusing or perhaps even out of place. But Jesus, he's painting a picture here. We, we don't know the exact direction of the wind. We don't know what causes the wind, where it originates from. We don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. It does as it, as it pleases. But we know it's there. We see evidence of the wind. It's the same with the Spirit. We don't know what the Spirit will choose. We don't know why the Spirit chooses what it does. We don't know where the Spirit's coming from, where the Spirit's going. But we see evidence of the Spirit. We know the Spirit's at work. We see it every day. And Nicodemus, he's exasperated at this point. He says in verse 9, How can these things be? I, I, I don't get it, teacher. I, I don't understand. Can you explain it to me one more time? Explain more to me. How does the Spirit choose? How exactly are we born of the Spirit? What does all of this mean? I don't understand. 
You see, Nicodemus, he was still holding on to the old ways. He doesn't yet accept what Jesus is telling him. He cannot let go of the system of the law that the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders so dearly held on to. And what does Jesus say in verse 10? It says, Jesus answered to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet do not understand these things. You are the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. Yet you don't know what I'm talking about? How can that be? How can you not know what I'm talking about? You're a Pharisee. You're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're a teacher. You are a respected teacher. You've studied the scriptures. Yet you don't know about these things? You don't know what I'm talking about? How can that be that you don't know and you don't understand? Now, Nicodemus, he was a respected teacher. Notice what Jesus says. It says, you are the teacher of Israel. He was a big deal. Nicodemus was a very learned man, very educated, yet he was surprised by what Jesus was telling him. But if he knew the scriptures so well, if he was really as educated as the Pharisees uh, would have been, he should have known that nobody comes to God on their own, on their own merit. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. God changes you. God changes the person. God saves you. It's not a bunch of things that you do, Nicodemus. How do you not know this? But Paul wrote about this very thing, about the spiritual depravity of Israel and their lack of understanding. He writes this in Romans chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They were trying to do it their own way. They didn't understand what the scriptures were actually telling them. They wanted their own way of doing things. And Nicodemus, he was gripped by this. He knew the scriptures inside and out. He would have had large, very large portions of the Old Testament memorized. He would have the first five books memorized completely. He knew the scriptures. But he was not saved at this point. He didn't have the righteousness of God at this point. We know he eventually gets there. We see that in later chapters as we see him at that trial before the Pharisees. And then as he comes to rush to make sure Jesus has a proper burial, he gets it. He understands later, but not at this point. And that's so easy to fall into today, isn't it? We see so many people like that. It's so easy to know about the scriptures, to know Verses, memorize, you know, I, I would say most people in America could probably quote to you John 3, 16. Everybody knows that verse. But that's not what saves. That's not what righteousness is. It's not being righteous before God. We must be born again to have a genuine, true, saving faith. It goes back to what we have seen repeatedly here in John's gospel. It's, it's not just enough to have a head knowledge. That doesn't save anybody. You know, back to our, our boat illustration, yeah, I can have a head knowledge of, hey, you know what, somebody's going to eventually come get me, but that doesn't save you. Head knowledge doesn't do us any good. That's not salvation. It's not enough to say a prayer. It's not enough to walk down an aisle. You know, anybody can, can walk down here in a moment of, of emotion. Anybody can raise their hand because they feel an emotional pull or the, they, don't, they don't want the pastor to think that, oh, you know, I've never raised my hand before. I better do this so they think better of me. 
but it's not real. Now, it's not to say that there's not people who, when they walk down, it's, it's not real. There's definitely people who are saved when they come forward. But the act of walking down an aisle, the act of raising a hand or saying prayer, that's not what saves you. That's not what it means to be saved. Being saved is a, a change of heart, a change of mind that brings about true faith, fully entrusting oneself to Christ as both Savior and Lord. At this point, Jesus, he begins a discourse on exactly what must happen for salvation to be brought to mankind. But first, before he gets into that, he further rebukes Nicodemus and the other leaders for their unbelief. Look in verse 11 of John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You don't even understand the temporal things, Nicodemus. You don't even understand what I'm telling here. And again, he says, truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth, Nicodemus. We speak of what we know. We're bearing witness to what we know is true. Yet you don't receive the testimony. You don't believe what we're telling you. You don't believe the earthly things. How are you going to know the heavenly things? And remember that overall, the Jewish people, they did not accept Christ overall. Back in John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. What did they not receive? The heavenly things, the nature of who Jesus is, his relationship to the Father and what he would do just a few short years later to secure their salvation. Nicodemus was not ready nor able to handle those things. But Jesus continues to tell us exactly what would happen in verses 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus here again, he uses his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. He is the one who's been to heaven. He is the one that was seated at the right hand of the Father. He is the one that came down to save us. He's the one that would come down to be that sacrifice, to come to people, live amongst them, who rebelled against Him and the Father, who had no respect for Him, who were living in sin, sinners like you, sinners like me. It is He who would be lifted up on that cross so that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. In John, he mentions, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, this is referencing an account found in Numbers chapter 21. It says this, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the lake of Edom, land of Edom, excuse me. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God. They spoke against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we spoke against the Lord and we spoke against you. So pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
God delivered the Israelites in the wilderness from the plague of serpents if they placed their faith in what he said, fully entrusted themselves, looked at that serpent. That seems crazy when you think about it. Okay, so there's this bronze serpent on the pole. I just got bit by a viper. I'm going to die. But somehow, if I look at this serpent, I'm going to be healed. That takes some faith. That takes some faith. But the same picture is being painted with Christ. He is lifted up on the cross. It requires His death, His burial, His resurrection. That's Salvation would not come without those three things. We will be given life through Him. And that is eternal life. And Jesus, again, he was, he was foreshadowing his death as he said this. He would be lifted up on that cross to die for those who would believe in him, that they might have eternal life. And to receive that life, we must be born again. Nothing is more important in this world than being born again. It's not something that you can do yourself. God is the one who regenerates. God is the one that elects and brings salvation. It is Him and Him alone. Nothing we do saves us. As we said, it's not a prayer. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not a decision, not an event, not knowledge, nothing. It is not by any righteous thing that we have done or anything that we think is righteous that we have done. It's only by His mercy and by His grace alone. Glory be to God. Glory be to God. So as we go away tonight, let's, let's examine ourselves. Have we been born again? Is there a change in us that the Spirit has made? Are we living differently? Is there that radical change? Are we entrusting ourselves to live in Christ and Christ alone, knowing that He's the only one that can save us, accepting our salvation in Him alone, knowing that it is only by His mercy and His grace that salvation comes? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together and just the truths that you have, you have shown us that you are great and greatly to be praised, that you have brought us up out of the pit by your sole pleasure to bring glory to you, Father, Lord. And we thank you that you decided to save us, something that we could not do ourselves. Let us never forget that. Let us always seek to glorify you because of that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.